Welcome to the Frontline Conversations podcast, a platform that discusses issues around public policy and current affairs. We can't wait to share insights that matter to you. Are you ready to have the conversation? This is Frontline Conversations. Welcome to another episode of Frontline Conversations. Our guest for this episode is Sibongile Chabalala, who is the National Chairperson of Treatment Action Campaign. We will be discussing a range of issues that affect the South African population, including HIV and AIDS, gender-based violence, and women empowerment. Mom Sibongile, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to Frontline Conversations. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, good afternoon. Yes, yes, yes. Ah, I guess let's just get into it. Okay. Um, so, Mamsponile, the first question really to, to kick off our discussion, um, we would like to just start with uh, a question around the role of the Treatment Action Campaign in, in advocacy work um, in terms of access to medicine in South Africa. Um, the tech has a, a long history of lobbying the government for, for access to HIV AIDS treatment um, since the early 2000s. And this is also, you know, the period around um, HIV and AIDS denialism. Um, for those that are not aware, um, could you just kindly give us an overview of, of this period and, and what, what was um, HIV and AIDS denialism in our country? Yeah, um, that is the sad part of our history that we don't like to talk about most of the time because uh, I think almost everyone in South Africa lost a family member, a friend, a parent, a sister, a brother at that time because of HIV. Uh, in the early 90s, uh, you, rem you will remember that people were dying uh, a lot of HIV-related uh, illnesses, and there were no ARVs in the country, and there was nothing from our government uh, in, in, in trying to fight HIV. And Treatment Action Campaign was born in the 1999, 1998, I'm sorry, uh, on the 10th of December, and that's where the struggle started. That's where the confrontation started. That's where advocacy uh, in terms of HIV started. Um, what the situation at that time, I think you, 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 if you remember some of you, or because I can see you are very young, I don't think you were there at that time. <laughs> Uh, people were dying. People were dying like nobody's business. And the, 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 the funeral business, it was booming because people were, were buried every day. And uh, people were, were, were not getting attention from the government. The only thing that was treated in public uh, hospitals, it was just the, the, the in, uh, um, uh, infections that people are getting or, or, or opportunistic infections uh, that you are getting from HIV. So, and most of the children were born with HIV at that time. So as treatment action campaign, we saw a need to say, uh, ARVs are there, but are very expensive and people cannot afford to buy them. Because at that time, the, 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 the monthly uh, uh, package of ARVs was costing about 3,000 rands. That's when as activists or communities, we started to learn about fixed the fixed uh, fixed laws or patent laws that are, are are there in the country which 
block people from accessing a, a, a treatment at some point. So as you can imagine, at that time, 3,000 rand was a lot of money. Even today, yes. you cannot just wake up and have 3,000 rand, or you cannot just go uh, to the next person and ask 3,000 rand, and the person gives you 3,000 rand. So for a, a, a poor person, for a, a, a lay person, for a person who's living in an urban areas, but in a township or in a, in, a, in a rural area, to be able to have that money to buy treatment, it was a struggle. So people were dying, not because treatment was not there, but people were dying because they, they, they couldn't afford to buy treatment. Access That's right. what, sorry? Access was definitely an issue. Yes. So that's where Treatment Action Campaign came in and that's when it was born, when some of the activists thought that as much as they can afford ARVs, but we fought for freedom in the country, we fought for equality in the country, but then people are dying because of unequal treatment that people are, 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 are provided in the country or are given. So what does that mean? It means when you have more money, you'll be able to buy ARVs, but when you are poor, then it means you'll die and dignified death without anybody even caring to say what happened. The only thing that they'll be caring of are numbers to say how many people died uh, recently. So that's when treatment action campaign born and that's how the situation was uh, where people were dying um, without any recognition or without dignity and we, we had to bury people every day. So TAC came and play a role in that time to engage government to say, we can't allow people to die like this. And we, we started to learn in the constitution of the country, which is section 27 of the country that says everyone has a right to quality healthcare services. So we started using constitution and science together in order to engage government in, in, in accessing treatment. And what we have got out of that, it was denialism and the pushback from the government because we were told that ARVs are so expensive, we can't, the government cannot afford, and people are so, people who are illiterate uh, cannot be able to take ARVs. So communities were undermined because the way they thought that people living with HIV or people who are infected with HIV or who cannot afford to buy ARVs are, are, are so stupid that they don't even have time. They don't know time, I mean to say. Uh, they, 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 one of the argument was that people that don't know how to read, they don't know time, so they will miss time to take ARVs, which I think that was very use, useless and stupid mm -hmm. to say to people who who, who, who who are living with HIV or who are infected with HIV. Um, the engagement was not easy because from 2000, uh, from 1998 till 2000, uh, there was nothing that was coming from the government. And when the 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 the, the era started, that's when things got worse because he came up with a with 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 a, with a, with a confusion per se or with 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 argument to say uh, HIV or virus cannot uh, cause syndrome how does it, it 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 happened like that yes the argument was right at that time but the timing for, uh, for 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 bringing up that argument it was wrong because at that particular time people were already dying and we knew for the fact that there are ARVs and people are surviving on ARVs and other countries already have started uh, providing ARVs to their people and why South Africa cannot take that reasonable uh, 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 responsibility and, and 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 provide ARVs uh, and we had to push 
and we had to take government to court in order to start winning our first campaign, which is saving our babies campaign, which we were fighting for PMTCT, prevention from mother to child transmission. And 2000, we won the first case. Uh, unfortunately, we still got the, the pushback from the government where it's not provided. 2002, we had to take the, 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 the government again to court. That's when the, 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 the first campaign of saving our babies or PMTCT program was started in South Africa. And from there, we, 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 we expanded our program where we took government to court to say, now we need ARBs for everyone. Uh, <clears throat> We won that case again in 2002, uh, but then the challenge was then now the prices are so high. That's when we had to turn the fight now to say pharmaceutical companies, you cannot make profit out of people's uh, misery. So people are dying, you have to reduce the prices so that everyone can be able to access ARVs. It was not even an easy fight uh, at that time, but uh, because now government was already on our side. We had to fight alongside with the government, fighting pharmaceutical companies. Um, up, uh, for, for, from our fight was so productive because today we are buying ARVs, the monthly pack of ARVs, less, in less than 100 rand. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> a pack uh, cost about 90 rand now. So you can imagine from 3,000 to 90 rand uh, what a, a, a difference that we made. So yeah, that, a, a brief, that is what we went through, that is what was happening, and that's how treatment action campaign uh, intervened. But not forgetting that while we were intervening, we were giving information to people on the ground. We were educating people about HIV and treatment. Why is it important for people to take treatment? Because our government on the other side, they were saying ARVs are toxic and they will kill more people and all those things. So we had to work with our partners like your MSF and other international partners in order to, to, to put people or initiate people on, on treatment so that we can have a living example to say, we have this number of people now who are on treatment and they are surviving. So if you are saying uh, they are toxic, what do you talk about? So we had to also create evidence while we are fighting. So there was a lot of work that was happening uh, behind while we are engaging the, the, the government in courts and, and in meetings. Yeah. Thank you, Max Mungile, for providing, um, you know, I think that in-depth um, history um, of TAC, especially, you know, when you, when you talk about or provide an overview of um, lobbying government and, and also providing the, the other aspects to it, um, you know, lobbying pharmaceutical companies such as Pfizer and even the people on the ground. Um, I think... Okay, um, just amazing the work you've done. Um, thank you, first of all, I'm so touched. Um, so we were talking about that age of denialism and I guess a sense of people not having enough knowledge um, in terms of you know, living with HIV and uh, what measures need to be taken. So I think it's safe to say that over time, especially with the work that um, you have done and other civil society organizations have done, that there is more knowledge out there. Um, people know. But the current stats then say that South Africa has over 7 million people living with HIV, um, despite the knowledge being there. So I'd be interested in knowing from your perspective or from the TSC's perspective, 
what are those factors currently that are contributing to new infection? The knowledge is there. People now have access to the medicine. What is causing, you know, rising um, or more infections? There are a number of factors that causes more infections. I will start by one, which is poverty. Mm -hmm. uh, poverty, it has, it has made people to make choices that, not, that are not, they are not happy about, but those choices or decisions that they are making, they are caused or they are forced by poverty to make those choices. For instance, I will make an example. We have a lot of young people who have lost their parents due to HIV-related deaths. And the country doesn't support those young people. And there is nothing for those young people to be able to, to support them or to go to school or whatever. The only time that the country will think about that child it's when they say you cannot pay you you can access schooling without a, a school fees which is good but at the end of the day at the end of the day their child has to go back home which the home they, 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 at home there's no food there's nothing there's no clothing for that child child is a young woman that child will opt to sleep with the older men so that that child can be provided with something like you know, your pocket money, your money to buy clothes, to buy food and other things. Uh, that's, what, that's what introduced sugar daddies and bless us in the country. And that had, 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 in, uh, had an impact, had an impact in, 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 in the number of young people being infected with HIV. Um, also staff attitudes, uh, which I'm talking about healthcare workers attitude at the facility. It has chased people away from facilities, even those who have already, who are already on treatment because of the attitude of staff, because of the not friendliness of staff in facilities, they end up being scared to go to facilities and decide to say, I'm no longer going to take treatment. And if the person is no longer taking the treatment, it means that person's viral load, it won't be, it won't be undetectable, it will be detectable. And that person, it's easier to, to transmit HIV from one person to another person. And uh, also accessibility of preventative methods like uh, PrEP, condoms, and others. Some people, they, will, they, they have an argument to say, but condoms are everywhere. The question is, are everywhere for who? Uh, condoms are everywhere for mostly adult people, but for young people are not there. Mostly of young people who are now starting to engage on sex activities are at high school where condoms are not there. And for the young person to go with you wearing a uniform to the facility or to the clinic and take a packet of condoms, there are all people there who will look at that person and at that young person and say, what is she doing with the condoms, with the packet of condoms? Or what is he doing with the packet of condoms while he was supposed to be at school? Um, we heard a lot of stories where young people go to facilities for, 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 for sexual reproductive health and rights services, but they were not provided because uh, they were told to say, you are so young to engage on sexual activities. So you cannot come here and, and ask for those services. Or do you want to have sex? That is why you want condoms or PrEP. So like, for instance, we have PrEP now in the country, but the, the PrEP, that's what we're talking about, where is it? Uh, yes, we understand that young people, they need to get it, especially young girls from 14 to 25, uh, men sleeping with men and uh, sex workers and all those things. But the question is, 
our health facilities uh, uh, accommodating for those for, for those key populations that we are talking about. Honestly, they are not, because if you expect a sex worker to go to the facility and ask for PrEP, one question that we would ask you to say, why do you need PrEP? And you have to fill that form to say, I'm a sex worker. As soon as you say that, then there is stigma attached to you. And uh, you'll be asked to say, can't you find job or something to do instead of going selling your body? So those are the things that uh, uh, make uh, 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 ARV, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, HIV uh, infection rate to grow in the country. So there are a lot because also any, the other part is that as much as there is uh, we are now talking about sexual uh, activities, talking about sex, but not all of us as parents are doing that to, to our children to talk about sex. At school, as much as we are, we've been advocating for sex, comprehensive sex, sex education, but it's not happening because there are people who are blocking that, uh, that education, such as pastors and, 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 and school governing bodies, where they think that we are teaching children how to have sex but the, the honest truth is that young people are engaging on, on sex activities and the number of teenage pregnancies tells us that people, young people are having sex and if they are having sex without using condom, they'll be pregnant, which means even the HIV uh, virus will be able to be inf infected to a person. So that's how uh, the numbers of in infection are growing in the country because there are a lot of uh, 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 issues that we haven't dealt with uh, as a country. Um, um just moving on um, to to not, the challenges that we currently face in the country um, with the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, we know the the detrimental effects that it has had on the the, the economy. It has had on you know, um, uh, our livelihoods as, as people in South Africa. But I would like to just find out what, what is the biggest challenge that the HIV and AIDS community has faced um, during uh, the national lockdown and, and during um, COVID-19? If you remember when the lockdown was announced, soon after that, uh, we were advised to avoid using health facilities mm -hmm. because that's where most of people who are having COVID-19 symptoms will be there. And that has affected us as people living with HIV. Why? Because some of us, we understand that our immune system is compromised and there was no information to say, when you are living with HIV and you are on treatment, how does how safe are you? Mm -hmm. So most people, they, they started to avoid health facilities. And while we are at that, as, as activists, we started to engage to say, but this is very wrong because people, they have to collect their medication and people are given one month medication. And after a month, they have to go to the facility. And those are the challenges that people have, have faced. That's number one. And number two, uh, remember when the lockdown was announced, everybody was scared of COVID-19 because we didn't know what is it. And we thought we are all going to die. Uh, some of, of, of the people were talking about uh, the Italian flu that killed people in the 1960s. And everybody thought that is it. And 
everyone wanted to be with their families. And we know that most of the people are, are leaving their, their homelands to come to urban areas to, for work. And that's where they collect their ARVs because most of the time they spend it in the urban areas or in the, in the, in the cities. And now people were locked in, 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 in the provinces or in the rural areas, provinces, or where they are, they, their families are, where they're not collecting their treatment, which made it difficult for them to access treatment. When they go to facilities, they'll be topped up where you are given maybe five days or one month treatment. But the next month when you go there, they will tell you to say, no, 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 we don't have your file. And only the medication that we have in our facility, it, it, it caters for our people who are here. So we cannot give you more. And when we try to engage with facilities to say, okay, because the person is locked down in Pumalanga and he's working in Gauteng, can't we make means of, of getting a referral system or something that will say this person is taking this medication so that can person can get a medication in the, in the space where the person is then it was difficult because some of the time you find that the clinics uh, in the in the rural areas they don't have telephones or if they are there they are no longer working the internet is no longer there it's not working and the nurses have to go around and buy data out of their own pockets in order to get those letters uh, fax machines are not working so which means it made it difficult for even healthcare workers to assist the situation at some time um other challenges that we faced is, is disrespect that we got from healthcare workers, where people living with HIV had to be given their medication over the fence, uh, where they had to ask the security to go and collect uh, the, 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 medici the, the medicine or the ARVs at the pillbox. We know that uh, most of the securities or people who are working in the facilities are people from the local community. So if the security is your next door neighbor, it means the, the security now will know that you are taking ARVs and other, other people will just opt to say, instead of me exposing my, 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 my sickness to this person, I'd rather go home, not take the medication. So that was also the, 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 the challenge. The other challenge, it was shortage of ARVs. So mostly, mostly of people who are on the first line regimen, we are we were taking a tenafovir, efavirenz, and 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 which is a, 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 a fixed dose combination. So people were switched from that uh, red from that treatment to a new treatment which has dolutacrave, and people were switched without even proper uh, preparedness and uh, readiness. So that uh, medication, the new medication, it has its side effects as much as they are not much as the first one. But uh, one of it, it was insomnia, of which people were not explained to say when you take this one, as much as the last, the, the older one, you were taking it at night. This one, you better take it at, in the morning because. If you take it at night, you might not be able to sleep. Other people have suffered severe headaches, which they were never told about it. Some uh, people were vomiting and unconstitutionally, and unconstitutionally, uh, they, they couldn't uh, understand what is happening. That's when we had to come in and advise them how to take that treatment and prepare them to say, how does the treatment it's been taken? But the healthcare workers were not doing that, which was the problem. So those are some of the challenges that we faced during the, the COVID-19 or during the, the, the lockdown. Um, okay, and Maxwell, what were some of the, the campaigns 
um, or the strategies that the, the TAC used, um, as, uh, and more, more importantly, at grassroots and the, and the primary care level to, to deal with some of these challenges that, that people face. So what we were doing, we were engaging or dealing with the challenge by challenge as it comes. So because we didn't sit back during the lockdown and decide to say, no, we are on leave, we couldn't be on leave. We continued to engage people on social media. We continued to be on the radio station so that we advise people what to do and what happened. And that helped us to get more cases because people were contacting us directly and we engage with the facility directly to try to assist the, the, the situation at that particular time and where those people where people were given a medication over the fence we managed to say okay let's call the facility and get a and understanding why are they doing that and come up with possible solutions to say, maybe we should use this better solution other than doing that outside. And although it was not easy because at some point our, our calls were not picked, at some point we were writing to ministers and writing to duty bearers, but without a response, but we, we, we tried by all means to engage those who are supposed to service us, to save us, us during the lockdown. Yes, um, you know, I'm also picking up on something as we're having the discussion. And it's that initially, um, looking back now in the past of the early 2000s, it was then the war on getting the facts of the virus itself. So getting people more knowledgeable on you know, what it is, how it is transmitted and so on. But now it seems as though there's now a war with mindset and that is outside of the virus itself. So as you were speaking, it's um, the healthcare workers within uh, these hospitals with kids not being able to go in and get condoms for themselves because that's the, the mindset that, um, no, if you do this, you're encouraging bad behavior instead of looking at it as you know, a preventative measure. And with you also mentioning the issue about access to um, with um, sex workers not being able to openly um, go to access these medications. So, Personally, I'm also interested in knowing if there are any specific programs that TAC is currently involved in, you know, to sort of fight this war against the mindset that actually stop or impede on people's um, ability to have access to these preventative means. Yeah, we do. Uh, we have a lot of campaigns uh, within TAC, which one of them is uh, health system strengthening. So in that campaign, what we do, we go to facilities, we monitor what is happening, and we look at the, 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 the human resource in the facility, we look at the structure of the facility, and also we look at how people are, 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 are provided services. And if we pick up something there, we, 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 we advocate there and there, and we engage with the facility manager there and there. And also we are working with a clinician society in educating healthcare workers to say, this is how you need to treat people on the ground, and this is how you should respond to other issues. But then the challenge that we are still facing unto that regard, remember people, uh, they are having their own beliefs. And sometimes they, will, they, they, they try to, to push their own beliefs at work, which is the discussion that is continuously with healthcare workers to say, 
when you are a healthcare worker, you need to provide services as you are supposed to be providing services instead of saying because your religion doesn't allow you to do this and then you now you try to enforce your religion at work. When we are at work as much as we respect your religion, but then you need also to respect other people's religion or other people's choices. Uh, and also we were, we are, we, 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 we've been engaging the minister to say, uh, to, to deal with issues like, for instance, of sexual reproductive health and rights and issues of, 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 of young people uh, uh, accessing ARVs. They should have, we should have people living with HIV, especially to those spaces where they should provide ARVs because they understand what these young people are going through and they should be young also because if they talk to each other as peers and at the same age group it's easier to open up to them and those for who are supposed to work at the SRHR room where they have to go and get maybe the contraceptives and all those things we need young people also who can be able to understand and give more information it shouldn't be just an issue of going to the facility and you are just given a, a, a contraceptives and you go. But what is education that is coming up with that? I, what makes it difficult also to have that education is because we know that our facilities are too full and the nurses are, too, are, are, are so limited. So it's difficult for them to do all these things. Hence, on this campaign that I'm talking about, we are looking at that and advocating for more uh, human resource to be hired in the public system. So much has been done, so much needs to be done. Yeah. You know, so much work, so many conversations, but we're grateful for organizations such as the old that are doing this very important work. And um, we came across a survey uh, that was conducted, I think, around October this year, um, with not just PET, but some other civil society groups as well, um, looking at the challenges that are faced by the community. Um, I saw something about uh, challenges regarding, you know, access to life-saving economic education and food. Um, just for interest sake, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, could you give us a background about the survey, perhaps why you felt the need for it to be done, and maybe some of the key findings that um, were uncovered after the survey? Yeah, uh, the, the thinking behind the side, they, it was that because we know that people were locked down and we don't know what uh, people, how are they feeling, what are their frustrations, especially when you, you, you when people are taking uh, ARVs. So we thought that uh, at least we need to have that online survey so that people can be able to talk to us. That is one of our campaigns to make sure that we stay in contact with people living with HIV. So there were a few questions that were asked from that uh, uh, survey to say, what is the date did you last uh, collect your ARVs? What length of supply were given? Because we were advocating for three to six months medication so that even during lockdown, people cannot just go to facilities every day. And what district or province are you live, do you live in? So that we understand to say, if a person says, I live in Gauteng, but now I'm locked down in Pumalanga, what are the challenges? And also what clinic do you use? Which clinic do you use? So those questions assist us to understand, to say what is really happening and be able to assist uh, patients as the, 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 the issues come. So the, 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 the rationale behind 
the survey, it was to stay in contact with people living with HIV and also get a sense of how services are on the ground because most of our activities uh, we do we do them physically, like the one that I, I talked to uh, of uh, health system strengthening. So now converting and working visually, it was a bit difficult, but we didn't want to lose touch with people living with HIV on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, looking at that and perhaps the results of the survey, how do you perceive or how perhaps have you used the results of the survey to strengthen your own advocacy and to strengthen um, all the measures that you use to lobby government? Yeah. So after that survey, what were, what we, we we did, we took that report of the of that survey to the government, or took the government officials to alert them to say this is the situation on the ground. And as much as sometimes you don't want to talk to us, but you have to uh, continue take responsibility of what you are supposed to do, which is to provide services to people living with HIV. So this is how the situation is, and this is how we think you should respond to these issues because. The, the, the strategy that we developed is that we don't just complain. We complain and come up with possible solutions. So that's what uh, has that's how it has strengthened our our advocacy. And from there, that's when we saw a, a, a government or a, like like Houting coming to say, okay, yes, we have and and lost eleven thousand people on on treatment because those things they were not talking about. But as soon as they they understood that we are doing some work on the ground, then it made them to be on their toes and start looking to say how many people are still taking their treatment, how many people are losing on treatment, how many people are, 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 are not getting uh, enough treatment on the ground. Because what we've been getting from, from that survey is that some, some people were given, uh, they, were, they were counted pills from five to 12 pills. So it means every a week or every after two weeks, a patient has to come back to the facility to, 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 to get more medication. And mostly were given one month supply because there was a huge shortage of medicine in the country. Um, and Mamsongile, I think just moving on to, um, you know, 16 days and reflecting on 16 days of, of activism and, and, and the gender-based violence and femicide scourge that we currently face in, in our country. Um, you know, being in the forefront of advocacy and being in the forefront of, of activism, um, what approach do you think, um, you know, government should adopt in, in, in dealing with gender-based violence and genocide in our country? Uh, honestly, I, I always say this when I talk about gender-based violence, uh, charity begins at home. Yes. everything that you learn as a person, you learn it at home. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, whatever happens at home, uh, at home uh, 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 like it, it, it's like a mirror to what, uh, it's how you respond to the society. So when we talk about gender-based violence, I don't usually think it's only government's responsibility to fight gender-based violence or to deal with gender-based violence. But it's for, for government to only talk to say, yes, we are against gender-based violence, but there is nothing that talks to that, that is something else. 
the government has to strengthen the systems that are there to safeguard gender-based violence against women and, 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 and children. Why? I'm, what I'm saying, uh, a, a woman can be uh, in a relationship that is very abusive and a woman will try by all means to use the laws in order to protect a woman. But at the end of the day, the very same laws are failing the woman. So you will be asked to go to say, go and, and, and do a protection order against your partner. You go and do that, but that protection order doesn't... Uh, 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 protect you against the abusive partner. And sometimes you go to the police and the police, they say, no, 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 no. People are coming to the police station every time they fight. And after that, they, 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 may, they make up and they come, they, 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 they always want to uh, delete these cases. So they, you're making our job very difficult. But that is not their role to say, if I want to say, I don't want to continue with the case or I want to continue with the case, all they need to do is to ask me to say, why? Do you want to stop with to stop pursuing the case? What is is he threatening you? Is there any psychological support that the government is providing uh, to to gender-based violence survivors or victims at that particular time? Because at some point, uh, you know, when you talk about gender-based violence, it's 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 very deep, and it's difficult for everyone to to understand where it comes from. Um, you find out that the woman is or, or a person because what I've, I've learned lately is not only women who are victims of gender-based violence. All genders are victims of gender violence. But you find that the person who's a victim or who's in that situation at that time, mentally, he's, that person is not uh, be able to take decision for himself or herself. And that person is made to think that the abusive partner is the only protection that the, the person is. But then the government, how does it come in? Because sometimes you try to move out of that uh, abusive relationship or abusive uh, environment, but there is no space where it will you you'll be safe as as, as a victim. So uh, earlier in the earlier days, we used to have those uh, centers where they will keep victims of violence and you'll be kept there until you get back to your feet and you're able to to carry on with your with your life and while you are there you are keep you are kept in the safe place there were programs which are dealing with you as a person psychologically in order to be able to go back to the society and be able to be independent. But we now, because of funding, we see less of those uh, centers, which makes people who are victims of violence be vulnerable and opt to say, rather I die in this relationship than going out to be eaten by the wolves outside. So, you know, we need government to provide a support mostly to, 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 to gender-based violence uh, uh, victims uh, at that particular time. And our 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 justice system also need to need to need to safeguard especially for uh, for against uh, against uh, the abuse of women and children you know the, the law the, it always says uh, their first priority are children but you find that most of the children are still being abused and they are not protected because there are no safe houses for 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 children there are no no, no, no places where children who are sexually abused can be taken care of. So, though, so there is a lot of that I can talk about. Actually, when I, even I saw this question, it made me to think hard to say, uh, actually, what would the, what do we need to do? But we need to work together uh, as communities, government, civil 
society organization and come up with possible solutions because yes, solutions we have, but then the problem is that we are not working together. But also most important, uh, importantly, the, the perpetrators of gender-based violence, we need to look at that to say, what causes them to be so angry? What made uh, these people who are killing people, who are, who are raping young people, made them to be, to be animals like that? What is the cause? So it means the issue of mental health needs to be taken into consideration. So all departments have to work together in these regards because it's an issue that affects the whole society, not just few individuals. Yeah, definitely. And Ms. Fungu, what I'm getting from your response is that there's a necessity to look at this issue, um, you know, from all angles. So yes. in devising solutions, it just needs to be a multi-pronged approach. Uh, you just spoke about the culture of violence, you know, in our society. You also mm. spoke to the systems, you spoke to the laws. Um, even in this instance, I guess, there's also a war in the mind that also mm. needs to be so then um, government comes through and attacks this from a specific angle and they look at it from legislation. Um, mm -hmm. Earlier this year, there was the introduction of the three gender-based violence bills. Um, and this was seen as um, obviously one of the ways that our government uh, seeks to tackle the, the pandemic actually of gender-based violence. Um, so then I just want to know from you, um, do you feel a responsibility, not just for yourself, but perhaps from other civil society organizations to bring awareness of the different means that people have, especially legislatively, um, to address the issue? So making people aware of their rights within that state. Is there necessity for that? Um, are you looking towards uh, doing that in any way? Um, I just want to hear your voice. We, we are all responsible in fighting gender-based violence and we all have to take that responsibility, whether we have funding for that or not. Mm -hmm. uh, so as treatment action campaign, as much as we no longer like focusing directly on that, but uh, gender-based violence cannot be left without being attended to. So what we do, we work with organizations on the ground to engage on the issues of gender-based violence. In our, in our programs, we have a women's sector uh, program, we have men's sector program, we have LGBTQI sector program, we have uh, youth sector programs. Uh, how are, that, that is how we are trying to address these issues by sector by sector to say which sector, uh, what are the challenge for, for each sector because we understand that everyone is infected and everyone is affected by gender-based violence. So we, that's how, so our, 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 our governance starts from the branch level. So which is in means in communities. So those structures that I'm talking about are starting from the community up to the national level. That's how we engage with communities in terms of dealing with gender-based violence. And when these bills like some like the ones that we talk about, we translate them into a simpler language so that we can be able to translate it to our communities and people on the ground. Because what we have learned over the years is that the government at the top level, they will only uh, pass the bill and introduce the bill and leave, leave it like that for everyone to, to see, to finish how to deal with it. But we believe that implementation is more important. You, we have good policies, 
which are right, but how do we translate those policies into implementation and into a simpler language where everyone can understand. So that is our role. So most of the time when there are uh, 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 activities that talks to issues of engaging young girls and boys, engaging women, sector of uh, LGBTI men, we are part of those structures so that we can continue to influence and work uh, uh, better to protect women and other sectors in, the, in on the ground. Yeah, and I mean, you definitely spoke to the implementation uh, problem. And I think one thing that we've definitely also picked up in our own work uh, within the public policy space, even outside of gender-based violence, is that the legislative frameworks are there. And South Africa will be praised all over the world for having these beautiful laws, these beautiful regulations. But when it comes to implementation, we are, you know, faced with so many problems. Um, we've actually referred to it in-house as the implementation curse, that all these beautiful laws and these regulations will be developed. But now when it's time for them to find practical um, applications in these communities, it's difficult, you know? Mm. So then from you, um, in relation to gender-based violence, what would your biggest piece of advice be to governments to ensure that these wonderful laws are implemented? I said this even yesterday to the government, action speaks louder than, than weights. Mm -hmm. We need more action than weights. Mm -hmm. uh, to write these bills and be nice and brag about them, it's something else that is talking. Talking is too cheap, but we need action. So the government has to find a way of saying, when we have a bill in the government, how do we take this bill and implement it on the ground? And just to send a memo to say, these are the things to, to service providers. This is how things need to happen. It's not enough, but they need to go down and explain it thoroughly to say, this is how things should be done. Because over the years, what we have learned that there will be a bill, but then at the end of the day, or there'll be a policy, but that policy, it's not translated to the service providers on the ground. So it's not as much as we are playing that role as civil society, but it's difficult for us to reach every country or every part of the country. So we need government to work with us to translate these policies and bills into a simple language and service providers, they need to understand these bills because most of the time we have, we have to go and argue with service providers to say, this is what the bill says, this is what the policy says, this is how we translate it, this is how it should be translated. And later when they Google or they check it, they find out what we are saying is right. So it means the government just gives the people the job without even explaining to say, this is how it needs to be implemented. So now it's time for the government to say, when there are new policies, when there are laws, they need to be translated to the people on the ground, especially service providers on the ground so that they can be able to give good services to people on the ground. Yes, definitely. So it's cheap. Yeah, we need action. Definitely. And we need it now, Mom Thank you so very much. Um, yeah. No, for for all the work that, that the TAC and, and other um, you know, civil society organizations that you've been in collaboration with um, have done over the years. Um, you know, health, health advocacy, social, tackling social economic issues in our country is, is, is so important. And, you know, thank you so much for also highlighting that different stakeholders and different role players in our society 
um, each play a, an individual role, but you know, collectively there's so much that we, we can achieve together. Um, I'm not too sure if you've got any closing words. No, Sonia. I think we have unfortunately reached <laughs> the end of the podcast. Um, I'm benefit. Um, I've learned so much. This was such an amazing and enriching um, conversation. And I'm sure the listeners at home are better for it as well. Um, conversations need to happen. Work needs to happen. The action needs to happen. And it's important for us to realize that the work is not just up to governments, it's not just up to civil society organizations, but every single individual in the country. So hopefully as a listener at home, um, you have been challenged to do more in your corner to fight these issues, to be more vocal, to speak to the people around you and make the country a better place. Um, closing remarks, I thank you so much for availing yourself. Um, I wish we could speak for another hour. Definitely. <laughs> but unfortunately we can't. Um, yeah, so thank you, man. Thank you. And thank you to the listeners at home for uh, podcast. To keep up to date with public policy and current affairs, follow us on our social media platforms. You can find us on LinkedIn as Frontline Africa Advisory, Twitter at FAA underscore advisory, Facebook, Frontline Africa Advisory, YouTube, Frontline Conversations, and our website, www.frontlineafrica.co.za. You don't want